This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, I'm Matt Shotty. This is the Red Box Podcast, featuring the best of my Times radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Do tune in. Uh, there's obviously loads of stuff around about what's happening in the UK right now, whether it's exam results or the recession or, frankly, how we're going to uh, find our way through the next stage of the pandemic. But we're going right across the other side of the world for today's episode. Britain's become a bit obsessed with New Zealand. Uh, first of all, you had Jacinda Ardern, the Labour Prime Minister, taking maternity leave after less than a year in office. She was then praised around the world for a response to the Christchurch mosque shootings last year. New Zealand's also, of course, been courted by British ministers eyeing post-Brexit trade deals. And, of course, this year, New Zealand has been lauded for its handling of COVID-19, dramatically flattening the curve of the virus while Ardern's poll ratings soared, putting her on course for a landslide in next month's election. But now, after more than 100 days without a case, coronavirus is back in New Zealand and spreading in the community again, with a new lockdown ordered in Auckland. So what does all this mean for a country being watched closely around the world? Who better to ask than Winston Peters, the Deputy Prime Minister, who became Acting Prime Minister during Jacinda Ardern's maternity leave. He's the leader of the populist New Zealand First Party in the coalition. He's been an MP in New Zealand off and on for four decades, some liking him to Nigel Farage, others to a right-wing Ken Clark. He's also the country's foreign affairs minister. I began by asking him about the coronavirus situation and what's the latest. It stands right now. We've got four confirmed. We've got four probables. Uh, we have also got returning New Zealanders, which have been uh, put into isolation. And we have one of those, but that's a different matter. It's not a community transmission event. Uh, like, for example, the one that after 102 days we were besieged with and we're trying to get to the bottom of it as fast as we possibly can. What's happened then? Is this is this a sign that something's gone wrong or was this just an inevitable consequence of, of emerging uh, from lockdown? No, because we, as I say, uh, had all these months without uh, any transmission, community transmission at all. What we're trying to sort out is whether or not there has been a breach or an event which uh, means that someone has come in, it's got out of quarantine and got into our community, or whether we're dealing with a strain, the character which the world is still trying to sort out. And if we can analyse that in the next couple of days, we will know whether or not we're dealing with something we cannot be responsible for 
or something that in the end we have to be responsible for because there's been a breach or an escape of a, a transmission. Is it, and uh, you know, ministers and governments around the world are facing this, that obviously as time has gone on, everyone's got a bit more relaxed about abiding by, you know, the, the letter of the, the law. It, do you think that might be what's happening in New Zealand, that, that a few weeks ago, months ago, people were really abiding by those rules and maybe people are getting a bit too relaxed? I don't know whether you can say that because what we've got, of course, is that a desire to ensure that when people came back to this country, they were in 14 days of quarantine and that we were seriously on top of the uh, enforcement of that. Now, we bought uh, through this country uh, 80,000 people through the world back to New Zealand. And we, uh, in all, out of this country, took a number to uh, the total figure in and out of 150,000, all during the lockdown period with no transmission. So here we are, and you're asking a very sound question. Has, have we got careless or people relaxed and uh, let down their guard? We don't know, but we're trying to find out as fast as we can. And as you know, in any great game or any business, when you're doing well, that's the time to worry. <laughs> because, yeah, something might go wrong later on. Um, yes. I, I mentioned in the introduction just how uh, New Zealand has been uh, praised and lauded around the world for its, its handling of uh, coronavirus. I wonder how... Uh, how thing, how the UK looks from New Zealand. What have you made of the way the UK's handled it? Well, it's sort of a case of uh, raise up so long the thing speaks for itself. You've got a tragic circumstance in the UK, a parallel throughout Europe as well. Uh, it's very, very difficult to see how the government could have done much more in the circumstances by the time they took the action they took. It shared the same experience all around, the, of Europe, all around Europe as well. So we don't want to be pointing the finger over there. We just realize that, though you're an island nation, the distance between yourselves and Europe is far less than our distance between ourselves and Australia, for example, or the rest of the world. So we've had the tyranny of distance become the liberty of distance in terms of being on top of COVID-19. But here we go, 102 days later, we've got a breach and we're trying to um, get on top of it as fast as we possibly can, and we don't know what we're dealing with and won't know until maybe two or three days from now. Uh, I, I take your point about the sort of geographical distance, but is, is there been a policy difference? Is, is there something that, that New Zealand did at the beginning, which you now realise, having seen how it's played out around the world, you think that's the thing that really nailed it for us? Well, by going early and by going hard, I think we got ourselves in the position of being able to deal with a growing uh, difficulty, but the magnitude of that difficulty was not as massive as it became for other countries when the time they went to deal with the problem, it was totally out of control. Yeah, that definitely seems to be the case in the in the UK, that, that by the time it became clear how many cases were in the UK, that, that you know, it spread far, far wider. Um, this morning, we've had uh, economic figures out in the UK showing an incredibly deep recession that the country is already in. What state is the, uh, and this is obviously a result of the, of the lockdown, what, um, what state is the economy in in New Zealand right now? Well, we're not in bad shape in that context, but the reality is uh, not what the rising debt is, it's our capacity to ensure we can pay it off in the medium and long term. I mean, our unemployment's at 4%. It actually dropped by 0.2% uh, in the last uh, measurable quarter. But of course, that's all illusory. It's also whether you've got massive underemployment. 
and we face we face the fact that the tough times are yet to come and our difficulty and our challenge and it is an enormous challenge is to ensure that we have the policy capacity rightly framed to get as many people at a higher sustainable level as we possibly can get them to get ourselves through this and short there's no um, in short there's no shortcut we've just got to meet things head on five million people hopefully putting aside dogma and politics and focusing on what will get us through and uh, at this point in time there is some reason to be confident that New Zealand people will see that way as well You've uh, obviously countries around the world are spending uh, huge amounts of money to try and uh, see them through this crisis. Um, you've spoken before about your concern about, uh, in fact, you said if we're going to spend all our darn money tossing it around like an eight arm octopus and living on consumption and going flat broke, we've got to wisely invest in our people. Um, how concerned are you that, that this is just, you know, spend, 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 and there's now, you know, lots of people thought this crisis could be a short crisis, but now it looks like this could go on for, for much longer. How concerned are you about this sort of, these huge levels of spending? Well, extraordinarily concerned, actually, personally. Uh, the reality is that if we uh, think that we can get out of this by spending on consumption, uh, then we will fail. If we can spend it on production, on exports by import substitution, doing whatever we can to lower our level of dependence on the world economy whilst we expand our reliance on our own, we'll get through this because we're a lucky country. We've got tremendous water resources, tremendous land resources, maritime resources as well, tremendous wood quality and uh, aquaculture starting on the build now. And in that area, we've got enormous ability to expand our capacity um, we're the country. We're a country the size of the UK, but with a population of five million. So you can see that it's not resources we will be constrained by. It is the capacity of political leadership to realise this is a step-up moment like they've never seen in our generation. Um, as I mentioned before, uh, Jacinda Ardern in particular has received sort of global plaudits for her handling of the pandemic. Do, do you think they've been premature? Well, as Ronald Reagan used to say, you can't argue with success. And in terms of dealing with this, she was the face of our counterattack against COVID-19. We had an all-government response, but in the end, it's the flag bearer at the front that gets the applauds. And fair enough, you no use being envious, no use being jealous. The fact is, what was the objective? Win the battle. And win the battle we thought we were. And I think we still can. But in the end, this is not what the issue long-term is going to be it'll come down to the hard reality of economics and the economy. And the sooner we focus on that, the better, in my view. Does it, it, it doesn't annoy you that uh, it, Jacinda Ardern gets all this praise. You're the Deputy Prime Minister. It's a coalition government. Um, it never frustrates you? Well, you've got to be big and you've got to be charitable. The fact is that I've got a vested interest. I made a choice with my colleagues that no one would, that thought we would make. But I knew that capitalism in my country had lost its human face. There'd been massive underinvestment in so many things that were important. We had a sort of a neoliberal view that we could carry on whilst our place in the OECD had been declining all these years. This was a problem we had before COVID-19. I just believe that COVID-19 gives us a chance to reset uh, with our eyes wide open and across the political divide, get some shared, agreed goals to get ourselves out of this. I think that's what our big challenge is.
Uh, but being jealous of uh, someone uh, whom you, as I say, have been uh, bound to because we shook hands to make a coalition work and we have made it work. Uh, in the end, we've got no re regrets about that. Uh, and whilst we might have got submerged because of our coalition arrangements, uh, the battle uh, for the next election is a long way from being over. And we've got enormous confidence from, uh, from our view of being able to turn this around. Yeah, I'll ask you about the uh, election in a sec. I just wanted to ask, because obviously you, you were the acting Prime Minister during Jacinda's uh, maternity leave. If you'd been acting Prime Minister or Prime Minister at the start of this crisis, would you have done anything differently? Yes. Uh, I bought the army and farm more quickly. I'd ensure that at our border, that uh, when it comes to security measures, that we had a, without being overemphasising this, that we had a military-style approach so that people knew strictly what was required of them, that they understood with greater clarity that we're all in this together and any remission or any departure from the regime was going to be very costly to the community and therefore be costly to individuals. I think there would have been differences from that point of view. And also, we argued from the beginning for the military and we also argued from the beginning for the use of face masks because we believed internationally uh, there was enough evidence to prove that while it's not a total answer, it is a substantial answer in terms of containing the spread. And uh, there's been some speculation that countries who've got women leaders have done better with coronavirus. Do you believe that's right? Well, it's the kind of thing you'll see from all sorts of people in the commentariat. <laughs> uh, it, it might sound convenient, but... With the greatest respect, uh, this was an all-a-government effort. If we didn't, as a cabinet and as a coalition, put the assembly of a unified effort together as a cabinet, we would not have succeeded. And that's the difficulty that you've got when you have the commentariat making their views known, is that they don't understand the intricacy and the complexity and the sheer hard work of putting a united package together from an all-a-government perspective. If you like what you're hearing, you can listen to the whole of my Times Radio show. Either listen back on the Times Radio app or you can listen live Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. We'll have more on the episode after this. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
Well, let's move on and talk about this uh, election. It's Matt Chorley on Times Radio speaking to Winston Peters, Deputy Prime Minister of uh, New Zealand. The general election coming up on September the 19th. Back at the beginning of the year, the two main parties, Labour and the National Party, were neck and neck in the polls, while your party, New Zealand First, were... Uh, on what, about 5% in the polls. The latest polls, though, put Labour, Jacinda Ardern's party, way up. Up one poll, over 60% on course for a landslide, uh, potentially able to govern uh, with a majority, not having to enter a coalition. Um, here in the UK, voters are quite familiar with the idea of a coalition government where the small party gets punished at an election. Uh, we you know we saw it with Nick Clegg, the Deputy Prime Minister here, even... Uh, um, uh, you know, lost many of his uh, MPs. Uh, some are predicting the end of your party, New Zealand First Party, in this election. Um, it's not even currently on the 5% needed to make it back into Parliament next time, man. Uh, why do you think this happens to smaller parties when, you, like you said, they step up and do the thing, you know, in the national interest? Why do, why do smaller parties end up getting, getting punished, do you think? Well, in our country, uh, we have a uh, media that still thinks we're under first-past-the-post. In your country, it's understandable because you are first past the post. But in my country, we've got MMP and have had it since 996. And so there's no excuse for them not understanding the narrative. This is a proportional yeah. voting system. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's mixed member proportional, just like the very similar to the German system, but with a higher threshold of 5% nationwide. Not state by state, but nationwide, so it's a high threshold. But the good news is I've just seen the latest polls, shared with the Labour Party, by the way. Labour Party's on 52, so they're down substantially. The National Party is under 30, but we're well over five now. And so uh, when I hear people talking about polls, I have a very great disquiet for them, A, because of my experience, B, because I've got a political science degree, and C, because like Brexit, like the um, uh, Trump victory, and dare I say, like the Australian victory, I'm not someone who's saying it after the event. I predicted all three of them would be against what the pollsters said. And in fact, in the case of the Brexit, 23rd June, uh, 19, uh, sorry, 2016 decision, I wrote an article uh, for newspapers in the UK in February saying the British were going to leave, and this is why. And I'd like to refer you to it, because I was saying these pollsters didn't know what they are talking about, and they didn't. Um, just before we move on, because I will talk, obviously, to you about Brexit, do you think that what's happening right now with coronavirus will uh, affect the outcome of the election? Do you think that's why Jacinda Ardern's poll ratings are down? And so, I know she's talked about this being the COVID election I think she's announced that the dissolution of Parliament uh, could be postponed due to the outbreak. Um, what impact do you think it will have? Do you think the election will end up being delayed? Well, again, we don't know and we won't know until we get the uh, exactitude of the evidence emerging from this medical these medical tests at the moment. We won't know that until at the very earliest, I believe, for Sunday. That's a few days from now. It's uh, Wednesday in New Zealand at the moment. But we will know this by Sunday. And if it is, as some of us suspect, much more concerning than we, we think at the moment, that'll have a whole new bearing on when the selection is being held. Not on the 19th of September, it may be, uh, as some parties are calling for in as late as uh, November the 21st. Um, it's just too difficult to say and, and too hard to say because you're asking questions. The answers of which I'd love to have, but I haven't got the medical evidence to back it up. Yeah, of course, of course. It's a fast-moving thing. Let's talk about Brexit then, because you, you raised Brexit. Um, you, you said you set out why you thought Britain would uh, vote f uh, to leave the EU four years ago. Do you think, given how it's played out since, that was the right decision? Well, in the end, the people are right. I mean, Churchill said that, even though he lost 
having given, been the front voice and the image of the UK and the Commonwealth in the Second World War, the, the election, the, the war was over and the next election he got beaten. But he grinned and grinned and uh, grimaced, but he said, you've got to trust the people. And five years later, he was back. So there's parallels here in that context of the idea that we're going to have a COVID election might be a convenient narrative for some, but this election will be about the economy. Yes. In the case of the, in the case of Brexit, when you ask me, well, the British people were, you know, as you know, uh, the European project had gone long beyond a trading arrangement. It was looking about to have its own army. It had its own foreign minister. Where was going to, where was going to end up? That's why the British people left because they believed it was a freedom issue and a sovereignty issue. And being where they were all those years down through the centuries, they'd come to view that the system was not serving them and particularly the people in major northern, uh, northeastern uh, labor electorates showed a huge dis disconnection between themselves and their labor MPs. It was actually not difficult to understand when you've got people who are voting for the first time in 30 years, who are 45 and 50 years of age, uh, sorry, 50 or something years of age, you realize that a phenomenon is going on that's not being measured by the experts, so to speak. Yeah, and they, those people came out and voted in, in large numbers. Uh, do you, lots of people talk about how uh, Britain can, uh, as a result of Brexit, go out and strike new trade deals, new relationships with countries around the world. New Zealand often gets cited in that. I mean, you are inconveniently placed on the globe um, in terms of uh, in terms of trade and that sort of thing what what realistically uh, can uh, New Zealand offer Britain in a sort of post-Brexit uh, world well we offer first of all a country that is match fit when it comes to trade deals we've had to look offshore look offshore for a long time and so we're seriously match fit when it comes to that and the way that I don't believe the UK is, because the UK has been locked up in the, EU, in the EU all these years. And in terms of their trading um, skills and finesse and their firepower, without being critical, they've never had an outing lately. They've never had a test, so to speak. It's like coming into a, you know, an Ashes contest when you haven't played for 30 years. <laughs> this is the same thing in the UK when it comes to this. And so New Zealand and Australia are seriously ready. And we were ready on the 23rd of June, 2016. When, when do you think, you know, in your role as sort of foreign affairs minister as well, when could a trade deal be signed with New Zealand? Well, I mean, we're still waiting for the total exit from the EU. But all of the prescription for this motor or this engine or this vehicle could have been already virtually signed up to, just waiting for the day when you could hit the button, so to speak, and launch the endorsed vehicle because the British would have been free to sign up. You sound a bit frustrated that we're not further along the road on that. Very frustrated. <laughs> we, we didn't walk out on you guys. You walked out on us when you joined the EU after a long and fantastic relationship. And all we are saying, and I was saying in that uh, article I wrote way back in February 2016, you can join 2.2 billion people in a Commonwealth where the average growth rate was 5%. Now, that is an enormous opportunity for a refocused Britain. The Commonwealth would become, would become alive again. The Commonwealth Secretariat has to be sharpened up and focused on a whole new age where vision and commitment and understanding is required. And here we are here in the, in the South Pacific, ourselves in Australia, and we believe we're totally match fit and ready to go. We just need the British to realise 
that you can do more than one trade deal at a time. Whose fault is it, do you think, that that's not progressed? Is that Theresa May, Boris Johnson? What's going on there? Well, I hate to interfere with uh, other countries' politics, but uh, when you have a decision to leave the EU and you don't have, leading the uh, exiting party, a uh, prime minister committed to the departure, it's somewhat predictable that inertia would set in. And that's what we've been witnessing from our part of the world until Boris turned up. You've, uh, you, I know you've referred to Boris Johnson as your friend. How do you think he's getting on as Prime Minister? I mean, he's also had a pretty eventful first year in office. Well, he's one of the great characters of international politics. When I say characters, I don't mean uh, something to do with uh, the spectacle. Boris has got character, and that's uh, not a common uh, quality uh, amongst the people that I mix with in politics worldwide. So in that context... Uh, I've always thought that he could be the leader that the UK needed. Uh, I actually sent him a text when he resigned saying that, uh, like Muhammad Ali, he'd be making a comeback, and, really, and pretty soon he did. So, uh, <laughs> What did he say to that? Did it, he reply? Yes, yes, he did, when he finally got around to all the rest. But the point is that, um, you, you know, these were difficult and unique times, and it needed a, dif- a, a different and unique leader. You, the UK did in that context. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when, when, when did you last speak to him? Oh, I haven't spoken to him for some time because obviously, you know, he's the Prime Minister of the UK. I'm still the Foreign Minister and Deputy Prime Minister. We know what our station is. <laughs> and the British, the British understand station more than anybody that I know. That's true. But there that are rules on these things. Well, that said, I can tell Dominic Raab, look, Dominic, pass on my regards. Uh, we start counting on him. But we'd like a bit of uh, delivery a bit sooner. And is that a message you're delivering to Dominic Raab right now? All the time. I say, Dominic, why didn't it happen yesterday? <laughs> right? Well, well we've, got, we've got these huge challenges. You know, as, as free democratic countries uh, who believe in the, the WTO and believe that, that there needs to be rules and there need to be credible rules, we're all in this together. And if we do believe in trade and fair trade in that context, we can only be victors as a consequence. I need to ask you about uh, um, another sort of big character in British politics, Nigel Farage. You've been likened even to Nigel Farage at times. Uh, And in the last uh, few weeks, there have been some strange stories that Aaron Banks and Andy Wigmore, uh, the bad boys of Brexit with Nigel Farage, have been over in New Zealand helping you in the election campaign. But I'm not sure that's totally the case, is it? Well, it's not true. (laughs) Everybody knows they're back in the UK and have been for a long time. Uh, you know, I've talked to, and my party has talked to over the years, countless other political movements around the world, because you've got to share ideas and see what works and what doesn't work. You don't have to always reinvent the wheel. You look, I look at Scandinavia, I look at Nordic countries, I look at the fact that they, in the case of Norway, got North Sea oil and uh, decided to put it into a sovereign fund, and Maggie Thatcher decided to spend it on tax cuts. I mean, these are just mistakes that you could make, and you make them permanently. So we have internationally always looked at offshore for ideas. And the fact that they have some ideas that they suggested uh, because of my involvement at the time with Nigel Farage's um, leave campaign, that we might like to share. But to suggest that in, in, in any way this is an interference from offshore is the typical work brigade criticism <laughs> that won't wash. I mean, they can't accuse me of being a dictator in one-man band the next minute saying I'm being run by offshore. Interest. You see how inconsistent their, their, their arguments are. And dare I say, Andy and, um, and uh, Aaron, 
know full well that, uh, like Nigel, nobody tells us what to do. Uh, I just need to finally ask you. Um, we're, just, we're, we're just a we're just a repository for repository for interesting and sound ideas. Uh, no more than that. No more than that. Um, I just need to ask you. I know your mother was from Scotland. Obviously, there were great ties between uh, Britain and New Zealand. Lots of people come travelling there. Whether it's you know people on gap years or people on long holidays and that sort of thing. Is the message do come? Just not yet. Do come? Just not yet. Uh, it's disappointing for us, and you know we've lost our massive tourism. Uh, industry because we just cannot put it together in a safe way. Uh, however, uh, that's life, and all over the around the world. Before we get too downhearted, look at the tragic, tragic economic circumstances of so many other countries. And when we do that, perhaps we should be grateful that we live in God's own. God's own was a famous expression by a prime minister way back in 1893. Uh, uh, he gave that expression. The Australians, of course, call themselves a lucky country, but we've got water. So we are God's own, <laughs> and we are lucky country at the same time. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box podcast. Uh, you can now listen back to my whole show on the Times Radio app, where you can also now listen to all of the Times podcasts, including Red Box too. Make sure you subscribe and review the Red Box podcast wherever you listen. But for now, for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. How does appreciation feel to you? A rising rush of warmth? A building wave of confidence? At Reward Gateway Eden Red, we know appreciation appreciates in value. Starting with people, radiating through companies to transform their performance and productivity. Capture the power of appreciation with our total employee experience platform.